Good morning. Ohayou gozaimasu. Moichizo. Great to be here with you as we gather to worship and hear from the Lord. This morning we're going to continue in our verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Luke by picking up where we last left off. We're also going to be setting aside some time at the conclusion of our service to partake in communion together as a church family. Uh, last week we started chapter 2 by looking at a very familiar portion of Scripture that detailed for us the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Today we're going to continue Luke's account by taking a look at what took place soon after the birth of Jesus Christ. So our text this morning is going to be Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 40. And the title that I've given to this message is Witnesses to Christ. Okay, Witnesses to Christ. I'm going to ask you one last time to rise to your feet in honor of the Lord and His Word. I'm going to read the Word of the Lord for us today from my Bible. I'm reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. I want to encourage you, if you're reading from a different translation, do your best to follow along. Okay, Luke He continues his narrative account in verse 21 with the following. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now there was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Verse 39. So when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Big portion of text today. We're going to make our way through it uh, slowly but surely. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day, the opportunity that we have to come in this place, to open up our Bibles, to read your word, and allow your word to speak to us, to 
mold us and shape us. Lord, we are grateful and thankful that your word is active. It's it's living, Lord, and it's a, a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And, and Lord, it's going to accomplish that which you set it forth to do. And so, Lord, we come with anticipation. We come with expectation that your word will do a work in our hearts and lives this day. And so, Lord, we submit ourselves and we yield ourselves to your word and all that you'd have for us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would lead and guide us in all truth, that we might understand, not just intellectually, but, Lord, that we might make application to our own lives and allow your word to mold and shape us more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. In our text this morning, uh, we're going to note some various uh, witnesses that testify of certain truths regarding Jesus Christ. Now, a, a good witness can make or break a case. Attorneys will pay top dollar to get the best expert witnesses if they believe their testimony will assure their client's victory. And while things like education and skill set and work experience are important and reliable objective indicators of whether or not an expert witness is suitable for a case, attorneys also look for a number of intangible, personal qualities that are equally important to consider. Uh, Many attorneys will look for witnesses that are not only well-educated and skilled in their particular fields, but will also look for certain characteristics Uh, in determining which witnesses to call forward. Attorneys have found that witnesses that are experts in their particular field also need to show great confidence and consistency and attention to detail and to show themselves as being trustworthy uh, in that they have experience and dedication if they're going to get a judge or jury to actually believe their testimony. And so uh, it's very important, not just that they know information, but that they're credible uh, uh, people and they have solid character traits. In our account this morning, we're going to look at these witnesses and we're going to note their overall qualifications as a witness. And then we're going to look to see what their testimony tells us about Jesus Christ. For those of you who like to take notes, okay, maybe outline, uh, I've taken the liberty of breaking up our text into five different sections, dealing with five different witnesses. Uh, and we're going to see what these witnesses have to say. Our text begins with the testimony of both Joseph and Mary, the parents of the baby Jesus Christ. So let's take a look at our opening verse once again. See what their witness tells us about Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 2, verse 21. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Our text begins eight days after the birth of Jesus Christ with Joseph and Mary having the baby Jesus circumcised. Now Joseph and Mary, they were both people of good character. In Matthew's gospel, we're told that Joseph was a just man, an upright and righteous man. In Luke's gospel, we've already noted how Mary was a woman who had found 
favor with the Lord. She was, in fact, highly favored. And the Lord was with her, and she was blessed among women. As God-fearing Jews who honored the Lord and followed the law, Joseph and Mary had Jesus circumcised on the eighth day in accordance with the law and the covenant given to the Jewish people. I want to give some background information regarding circumcision so that we understand and know what we're talking about here. Circumcision was something that God originally gave to Abraham and his descendants to observe as a sign of God's covenant with them. God promised to Abraham that he would make him exceedingly fruitful and that this covenant would be an everlasting covenant that God would be God to Abraham and to his descendants after him and that the land God was giving to them would also be an everlasting possession to them. And the sign of this covenant arrangement between Abraham, his descendants, and the Lord was circumcision. God said to Abraham, there in Genesis 17, he's actually still Abram at that time, and it's in Genesis 17 that his name is changed. He says, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old, among you shall be circumcised every male child in your generations he who was born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant he who was born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant and the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin that person shall be cut off from his people He has broken my covenant. And so circumcision was something given to the children of Israel as a sign of their covenant relationship with the Lord. It was a way to set them apart, to identify that they were set apart for the Lord. It was really a sign of membership, if you will, amongst the people of God. Though it was originally given to Abraham prior to the law of Moses, it was eventually incorporated into the law. And it's mentioned in the book of Leviticus, chapter 12, verse 3. Now, circumcision in and of itself was never meant to be a guarantee of some sort of special favor in the sight of God. It was really intended to be an outward sign of an inward consecration. It was given to Abraham actually based upon his faith. Romans 4 tells us this, expands this idea, tells us that Abraham received the sign of circumcision and described it as a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he, Abraham, had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And so it's not about an outward act. It really is about faith. This covenant... This sign was a covenant, sign of the covenant 
that God had established with him that was based upon faith. And so Jesus' circumcision was a way to identify with those who were part of the spiritual descendants of Abraham, those who would live a life of faith. Through their obedience to have Jesus circumcised, Mary and Joseph, they testify of how Christ identifies himself with us. That act of circumcision was a way for him to identify with us. From the eighth day onward, Jesus was identified with those who would live a life of faith in the Lord. His circumcision was the first of his many sufferings that he would endure for us. Beginning here on the eighth day and culminating upon the cross of Calvary where his blood would once again flow for us, Jesus identifies with us and he became as us that he may take upon himself the penalty for our sins. Now, something else would also take place on the eighth day. After a male child is circumcised, it was at this time that the name of the child would be declared for all to receive and celebrate with the family. Now, as we've read previously in our study of chapter 1, Gabriel the angel had visited Mary and informed her that she would uh, bring forth uh, and bear a son and that she and Joseph were to name him the, uh, Jesus. Now, the name Jesus is very important. And the fact that Joseph and Mary named him Jesus testifies of yet another truth about Jesus. You see, the name Jesus is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Yeshua, or in English we say Joshua, okay? And it means Jehovah is salvation, okay? The name Jesus actually speaks of the identity of Jesus as Savior. In Matthew's Gospel, we are actually told that an angel also visited Joseph and gave him the same instruction to name the baby Jesus, saying, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And so Joseph and Mary's obedience to name the baby Jesus testifies to the fact that Jesus was sent to save people from the penalty of their sins. Romans tells us that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. And then it also tells us in the book of Romans that the penalty for our sins, the wages of our sin is death, according to Romans chapter 6, Verse 23, because of our sin, because of our sinful nature, we deserve death. The penalty of our sins is death. But Jesus came to die in our place to save us from the penalty of our sins. He took upon himself the penalty for our sins when he went to Calvary in our place. The sins of fallen humanity were laid upon him as he hung upon the cross and he died in our place. Praise the Lord that he sent his son to take our place and to save us from our sins without him we would have no hope well let's continue on in our text looking at the next witness found in verses 22 through 24 read along with me in your bible as i read from mine now when the days of her purification according to the law of moses were completed they brought him to jerusalem to present him to the lord as it is written in the law of the lord every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the lord And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. The next witness called to the stand to testify is the witness of the law. 
There were a number of ceremonies that a Jewish family would take part in when God blessed them with a child according to the law of Moses. We just looked at the details of one of them in uh, circumcision and the naming of the male children upon the eighth day. Here in our text, two other ceremonies are alluded to that both trace their roots back to the law. There is mention in the first part of verse 22 the days of Mary's purification, and then there's the mention of the sacrifice required for such an event at the end of verse 24. You see, whenever a a mother gave birth to a male child, she would be, actually any child, she would be ceremonially unclean. Now, if she gave birth to a male child, she would be ceremonially unclean for seven days. The seven days were typical for any time a woman had an issue of blood flow. Once a month during a woman's normal cycle, she would become ceremonially unclean because of her flow of blood for seven days. But on top of the seven days, when a mother gave birth to a male child, there would be an additional 33 days added to the seven days to make it a total of 40 days that a woman would be considered unclean ceremonially okay uh, after the birth of a male child these were considered her days of purification it's described in the book of leviticus chapter 12 if you're interested in it interestingly enough i'll share this with you i don't have a point other than just to share it um the length was actually doubled if you gave birth to a daughter um, a woman would be considered ceremonially unclean for 14 days and then an additional 66 days for a total of 80 days if she gave birth to a daughter. Why the difference? I have no idea, and I'm not going to try and suggest an idea. Okay? <laughs> well, according to the law, when the days of her purification were fulfilled, whether for a son or a daughter, a woman would then bring to the priest a lamb of the first year as a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove as a sin offering to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. The priest would then offer it before the Lord, make atonement for her, and she would then be considered clean from the flow of her blood. And she would be able to participate in all the normal religious activities and ceremonies. Take note, however, in our text that Joseph and Mary did not offer a lamb and a turtle dove or a pigeon. They only offered a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And this actually lets us know something about Joseph and Mary. It tells us that they could not afford to pay the standard price that was required. For Leviticus actually gives an allowance for those that could not afford to bring a lamb in the first year. Instead, they were permitted to simply bring two turtle doves or two pigeons. One would be for a burnt offering and the other as a sin offering. And so we can deduct from their offering that Joseph and Mary were relatively poor. They didn't have very much financially uh, at this time. And so Mary made the offerings for her days of purification as the law prescribed 40 days after giving birth to Jesus. But there's an allusion to yet another ceremony here that we don't want to miss out on. For we know that all the firstborn sons were to be presented to the Lord one month after birth. Joseph and Mary needed to bring the baby Jesus to the temple and present him to the Lord. This ceremony was known as the redemption of the firstborn. It included buying back or redeeming the child 
from God through an offering. This was a way to acknowledge to the Lord that the child belonged to the Lord, who alone has the power to give life. The law spoke of this requirement in a couple of different places. In Exodus chapter 13, verse 2, it states, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it is mine. Okay? Numbers chapter 18 describes how everything that first opens the womb of all flesh, which they bring to the Lord, whether man or beast, shall be yours. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall surely redeem, and the firstborn of unclean animals you shall redeem. And those redeemed of the devoted things you shall redeem when one month old, according to your, your valuation, for five shekels of silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, which is 20 geras. And so, according to the law, Jesus would need to be dedicated to the Lord at the temple and then redeemed for the price of five shekels when he was one month old and that was actually a flat rate didn't matter if you were rich or poor or whatever five shekels uh per you know firstborn child that opens the womb that was the set price and it would seem that they took care of mary's purification sacrifice and jesus's redemption around the same time so they were in bethlehem they traveled to jerusalem when jesus was one month old they did his redemption then 10 days later it would be the 40th day, and then Mary could offer her sacrifice, and she could be purified for her uh, blood flow. So, what's all this mean? Okay. As we consider all of these different ceremonies and all of these requirements of the law that Jesus was part of, it reminds us of the fact that Jesus was born under the law. Galatians chapter 4 reads, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Jesus' very reason for coming was not to destroy the law or the prophets. Jesus said, I did not come to destroy, but to what? Fulfill. Okay? And so Jesus came to fulfill the law. And the law... Okay, what is it? Credible witness? Well, Psalms 19 verse 7 says that it's perfect. Okay, Romans chapter 7 says that it's holy and just and good. And so I think the law is a credible witness. And so the law testifies to us that Jesus has met all of the righteous requirements of the law. There is nothing left for us to do. The law has been fulfilled through Jesus Christ. We no longer are bound to the law because Jesus Christ fulfilled the law completely. He met the righteous requirements for us, and we can praise God for that. Well, let's continue in our text. We'll call our next witness to the stand, the witness of Simeon. And he actually testifies of a few different things. So read with me just verses 25 through 28 to get us started. It says, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. And we're going to stop right there. Okay? Here in these verses, we're introduced to a man by the name of Simeon. 
And we're told a number of things about him that help us understand the kind of person that he is, whether or not he would be a credible witness to Christ. We're told that this man, uh, Simeon, was just and devout. The implication is that he was a righteous man of faith. We're told that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, the consolation of Israel was a title that was used to refer to the coming Messiah, the one that would bring peace and comfort to Israel. We're also told that the Holy Spirit was upon him, and that he heard from the Holy Spirit. He was in tune with the Holy Spirit. He could discern the voice of the Lord through the Spirit. We are also told that he was led by the Holy Spirit in his actions. This man was spirit-filled and spirit-led, and the Holy Spirit had revealed to him that he would not taste death before seeing the Lord's Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah. Now, on the day that Joseph and Mary came to the temple to present Jesus to the Lord, the Spirit led Simeon to go to the temple at the same time. And as soon as Simeon saw the baby Jesus with Joseph and Mary, he reached out and took the babe up into his arms and blessed God. Now, I want to warn you guys something. In our day and age, doing something like that's liable to get you arrested and thrown in jail, okay? Don't do that, okay? Don't go around... Taking, uh, picking up complete strangers, one-month-old babies, uh, and start play, praising God uh, and blessing God. Okay? I, 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 can you imagine that? Some stranger, you know, just walking up to you, taking your, your firstborn, one-month-old, right out of your arms, and just starts, you know, praising God. That would be very interesting. <laughs> uh I think it could get really uh, hectic really fast, okay? Uh, But to their credit, Joseph and Mary, they didn't freak out or go crazy on Simeon, which we are thankful for. This man, Simeon, was a man that was filled with great joy and and fulfillment as the Lord's promise to him had finally come to fruition. And now he could die in peace having seen the Lord's Christ. And I see something here that I think is important and noteworthy about Simeon's actions. Simeon testifies to us of the need to receive Jesus prior to death. Okay? Now you might think, well, that's kind of obvious, but I, I think it's important to note this. We only have one life to live. And when it is gone, so too is our chance of ever making a decision for Christ. There should be a sense of urgency in our lives to receive Christ. And for those of us who have received him already, there should be a sense of urgency in seeing others receive Christ. For those that receive Christ, we can depart from this earth knowing that our last breath here on earth will be followed by our first breath in the presence of the Lord in heaven. Death is not something to be feared for the believer. Okay? It is a, a promotion. It is a graduation, a homecoming, if you will, the death of uh, one of the Lord's saints. But for the unbeliever, it's quite the different story. Death is an entry into eternal darkness and hopelessness. Simeon here reminds us of the importance of receiving Christ while we can, while the breath of life still fills our lungs. For once our time here is done, there is no reset button. There is no second chances to get it right. We have one life to live, and we don't know when that life will be complete. Let's make sure that we are ready for eternity, that we have received Christ into our lives. 
Well, let's continue on in our text. We'll note another thing that Simeon testifies of in verses 29 through 32. So, he took him up in his arms, he blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. These words are a song of Simeon's. It is a praise that he declares to the Lord in response to seeing Jesus as he takes him up into his arms and blesses the Lord. Simeon starts off praising the Lord for allowing him to to depart in peace, having seen the Lord's salvation. And though not specifically told so, we assume that Simeon was well advanced in age and that he has been waiting around for some time, simply waiting to see this final thing before he could depart in peace and go to be with the Lord. Now I want you to note with me something specific that Simeon mentions that may have been a shock to some of those who were gathered there that day regarding God's plan for salvation. Simeon states, My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. In this song of of his, Simeon testifies that the Lord's salvation is for all people, for both the Gentile and the Jew. And this would have been a shock to some people. Many viewed the Messiah as one that would come and bring salvation for the Jews, for the Lord's people, Israel, and and didn't think anything at all about the Gentiles and God's plan for them. Even though the scriptures are filled with reminders of this truth, for some reason, many of the Jews, they missed it. They did not understand the full scope of God's plan of salvation. Isaiah the prophet, he wrote of the Messiah, stating, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 6. Also, he stated in Isaiah 49, verse 6, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. You see, this wasn't some sort of new doctrine or teaching. The Jews simply just didn't get it. Okay? They didn't pay close attention to these promises uh, about salvation for all people but we can clearly see here just as simeon professes that god's plan for salvation involves all people it is for all people christianity is not just a western religion okay i I know a lot of the japanese uh, say oh yeah christianity that's a western religion that's for americans no christianity is for every man woman and child it is for the whole entire human race okay And I, for one, am very blessed to know that God's plan for salvation has always included the likes of you and me as Gentiles, a plan that is the same whether Jew or Gentile. We experience salvation in the same manner by grace through faith. Well, let's look look at the last bit of testimony that Simeon shares regarding Jesus in verses 33 through 35. It says, And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, 
Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. When Joseph and Mary heard what Simeon spoke, they marveled in response. The idea is that they were astonished. They were amazed. Sure, they had been visited by the angel and given an indication as to the life this baby would live as the Messiah. But to hear a complete stranger filled with and inspired by the Holy Spirit testify the fact that their babe was going to bring salvation to all people was something that greatly impacted them. Now, after Simeon's praise in verses 29 through 32, he follows it up with a prophetic word that was specifically given to Mary. Simeon stated how this child was destined or your translation may read appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. As Jesus grew and became a man, his ministry would lead to the rise and fall of many. Those that rejected him and his ministry would fall. Those who gladly received him and his ministry would rise. As he went about sharing the message of God's kingdom to all Israel, the thoughts and intents of people's hearts were revealed based upon how they responded to Jesus. Those that rejected him proved their hearts to be hard, their minds to be shut off to anything other than their own view of how things needed to be done. Those that received him proved their hearts to be soft and open to the work of the Lord. They gladly received the message Jesus proclaimed. They yielded their heart, their soul, their mind, their strength to the Lord. Simeon even noted how even Mary herself would experience great pain and sorrow as she would see how the masses would treat her own son, how they would reject him, how they would despise him and curse him, ultimately seeing him beat up and mocked and spit upon and whipped and finally hung upon the cross, laying his life down as a willing sacrifice for the people. You know, it's interesting little tidbit information. Mary is the only person that was a witness to both the birth and death of Jesus Christ. And she took a lot of that. Oftentimes we read of Mary pondering these things in her heart. It weighed heavily upon her. Simeon's prophecy testifies of something that we all must understand and take to heart ourselves. And it is this. There is no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. Simeon showed that people will either rise or they will fall, but none will stay the same. To not choose the Lord is to reject Him. An undecided vote is a vote to reject the Lord. You cannot remain silent about Jesus and think that you're safe. Jesus declared, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. You are either for Jesus or you are against him. We need to make sure that we've made the right choice about Jesus and we have properly identified him as our Lord and Savior, submitting our all to him. Well, we've noted the witness of Joseph and Mary, the law, and now Simeon. We have two more to cover. Take a look at verses 36 through 38 as we cover the witness of Anna the prophetess. It says, Now there was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. 
She was of great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Here in these verses, we are introduced to an elderly lady named Anna. We're told that she was a prophetess. Not only was she a prophetess, but she daily was at the temple serving God with fastings and prayers night and day. She was a woman of great dedication, of great devotion and commitment. She was married once. She lived with a husband for seven years before he passed. And then she lived 84 years as a widow. Now, doing the math, it would seem that Anna was at least over 100 years old, more likely somewhere around the age of 105. She was 84 years a widow, married for seven years. So if you add those seven years onto her widowhood, you get 91. Okay? Uh, she wasn't married at birth, so we know we have to add to that total her age when she got married. Okay. The youngest people were eligible to consent to marriage under Roman rule was 12 years old. So even if she got married at 12, she would then be a total of 103 years old. Okay. But it's more probable that she was a few years even older than that. Okay. This woman really is the poster child for dedication and commitment. Okay. After her husband died, she gave herself fully to the Lord and His service and continued steadfast day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, serving the Lord in fastings and prayers, looking to Him and seeking Him day by day. And she was there in the temple that day, like every other day of her life. She saw and heard what was going on with Simeon, and she too was led by the Lord to follow up Simeon's proclamation with a proclamation of her own. She gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Anna's witness testifies to us that redemption is found only through Jesus Christ. There is no other way to be redeemed to the Lord but through Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know, some people don't like that. Some people think, well, that's, that's very narrow-minded, okay? and, and they, that's pretty, they think it to be difficult to receive. Okay? I, on the other hand, look at it as very simple and straightforward. God has made it very simple. There aren't many different paths to the Lord. Okay? All roads do not lead to God. Okay? There's only one. And He has told us the one way making it very clear. If you want to find redemption, if you want to experience salvation and a right standing with God the Father, He's made it quite clear that there is only one way to do so. He's made it simple. It's like a multiple choice question and there's only one option to choose from. Okay? It doesn't get much easier than that. Okay? Redemption doesn't come through our works. It doesn't come through our serving. It doesn't come through our giving. It doesn't come through our reading our Bibles. It doesn't come through our going to church. Okay? It doesn't come through 
our religious ceremonies. Redemption comes by grace through faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ. That is the only way. God has made it very simple. I don't think it narrow-minded or difficult. I think God just made it very, very simple. If you want to be made right, if you want to be redeemed and have a right standing before the Father, the only way to do so is through Jesus Christ. Let's wrap up our text. We'll note one final bit of testimony before transitioning to our time of communion. Read with me verses 39 and 40. It says, So when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Verses 39 and 40 are transitional verses used to describe what took place after Jesus' presentation at the temple. While Luke's gospel reads as if Joseph and Mary departed soon after this time and went to Nazareth, we know this not to be the case. Okay? For we read in Matthew's account that Joseph and Mary hung out in Bethlehem for, Bethlehem for quite some time before they departed again. And when they did depart, they didn't go to Nazareth. Okay? We're told in Matthew's gospel that the Magi came and visited Joseph and Mary and the child Jesus... Based upon Herod's actions in ordering the death of all males to and under in Bethlehem, we gather that Jesus could have been as old as two years old when they departed Bethlehem. Joseph was divinely warned in a dream to depart from Bethlehem and to take refuge not in Nazareth, but in Egypt, because Herod sought the life of the child. And so it wasn't until Herod died that Joseph and Mary returned to Israel and ultimately the land of Nazareth. And so in our text, when it reads, So when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, comma, they returned to Galilee, that comma represents about a time gap of about two years perhaps before they actually returned to Galilee and lived once again in the city of Nazareth. And I just bring that up so that we have a complete understanding of the timeline. Sometimes people look at this and say, Oh, look, there's a contradiction in the Bible. No, it's not. You just have to read them together and understand how it fits, okay? Verse 40 tells us about how the child Jesus grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. The last bit of testimony comes from the Lord himself. We really don't need to spend any time developing whether or not the Lord is a good witness, okay? God is perfect. Um, he cannot bear false witness. He cannot lie. And so he is an incredibly good witness. Um, And here we see that the witness of God was that Jesus needed the strength of the Spirit as well as the grace of God as he grew into maturity. Listen, I think the application is very easy for us to make here. If Jesus, who was God in the flesh, needed to rely upon the Spirit of God and the grace of God in order to grow and mature, how much more do we need the same? (laughs) God testifies of our great need for His Spirit and His grace to make it through this life, for us to grow and to mature in our walk with the Lord. We cannot rely upon ourselves, on our own flesh. We need the Spirit of God and the grace of God 
to lead us and to direct us and to mature us into all that the Lord has for us. Amen? Amen.